We are back for another Codex Cantina episode, which is just two guys talking literature, trying to make sense of it. Now, we spend a lot of time pushing ourselves, trying to understand this literature, organizing it, and then bringing it to a conversational approach for how we deliver it. And we've absolutely put more money in it than we've gotten out of it. So if you guys are considering supporting this channel, we'd appreciate you checking out our Patreon link at patreon.com slash the Codex Cantina, as well as Ko-Fi of ko-fi.com slash the Codex Cantina. It all helps us in running the show, along with commercials, guys. So thank you so much. We're going to do a quick commercial break, and then we'll get on with the rest of the episode. So one problem I was having when reading this book is I just kept having this feeling. I can't put words behind this emotion that I've had I guess it's hard for me to articulate how I felt about parts two and three. I would agree with that sentiment. I think for me, I kept comparing it to Dostoevsky's other works. Well, I think I think that's kind of unfair. And maybe it's not right? fair to compare it to those yeah. novels, but it just you're in you're naturally going to compare works from an author to their other works, right? I mean, that's what well, I do a lot of times. If you look at but if you look at the techniques, what he does in those books is you have an overarching plot that moves everything forward, right? And I think this is getting to why I felt the way about this book. It's like even in like horror, the way they make progress is like there's like evenness and then there's tension building, tension building, tension building, and then there's like a release. But then the new floor is a little bit higher and they build tension and tension and tension higher. And then when they drop it again, the floor is even still higher. So it's like you get this progress even when it comes to like emotion for how it gets ratcheted up. And I will say a lot of how I feel was articulated really well in this, this book right here, okay? There's a novel by Elizabeth Dalton called The Epileptic Mode of Being, which she kind of took like that phrase from like another writer. But she says, the novel also shows this epileptic pattern in its larger structure. The action seems to progress unevenly in waves of tension that gather and burst in climactic scenes of spectacular emotional violence leaving the narrative energy of the novel depleted and for a time directionless until a new wave of tension begins to accumulate. And I can't help but wonder, like, did we start with like this incredible tension and then we had like either back down to where we started all over again. And then book two, she even quotes as saying feels like the beginning of a new novel. And I was like, yes, yes. Like we do get the info dump, like in the beginning of part two, and then you get this buildup and then directionless again. It's almost like these, short stories that were combined almost that didn't ratchet up or complete this arc that we're so used to with how Dostoevsky writes novels. So you think that the main issue is the episodicness of it? Uh, I don't know if that's a word that maybe was kind of a detriment to this novel in particular because it feels like it's more character driven than the others a little bit, which is kind of weird to say because the others are so character driven. And that the overarching the, and that the overarching plot is kind of not lackluster, but giving you too much in the beginning, and there's nothing to kind of coast on through the rest of the story. I can see that. Well, I don't. I don't think that's it at all. I think um, no. I don't. I, I I really think it has something to do with how Dostoevsky one wrote it, but also so so yes, I guess on some levels I agree, but also I think it's deeper where this is reflective of his whole struggle with epilepsy and an epileptic attack and how it kind of destroys a lot of the progress that you're having and leaves you aimless. And I guess that, I guess to an extent I do kind of agree too. So I, I take back kind of what I said, but 
it leaves the novel without as much structure. And I know that's how he wrote it, right? Like he was writing it as the pieces came out. It was released periodically to your point, but I don't think they're ever constructed to be, he never intended to be like, I'm going to write this and then combine it with that. Like saying it's episodic might be maybe the wrong word choice, but clearly the, the crafting and overarching structure is missing but that reinforces the point of it being kind of like this epileptic attack where afterwards you're just destroyed and emotionless. So I guess the question is, is no structure an acceptable form of a structure for a book? I like that. I say I struggle with parts two and three, I think, like many people in the read along and maybe just many people in general that are reading this and dissecting and analyzing it. But I think that that's a good change of pace. It makes you outside of your comfort zone. It's going to make you grow as a reader and a person. And to be able to experience something that is impossible for us to understand, an epileptic seizure or having that you know, um, debilitating disease and being able to experience that through literature, I think is kind of a gift. Yeah. Well, there is, I don't think Dostoevsky intended this, but one way that you could think about it is in the same way that Mishkin is just, he's outside of society, just doesn't get it. He's, he's going to do his own thing, right? Yeah, where right. he's a person without structure, right? He, he's a person without the structure and expectations and normalcies of what society expects of him in the same way that this is kind of the same thing for a book. It's not behaving the way a book normally behaves. And does that make it not a book? Does, does Mishkin become not a person because he doesn't perform the way his local cultural society expects him to? And I, I don't think it's comparable apples to apples, but it is an interesting thought progression of, huh, where do my judgments enter and where does essence begin? What if we read this book in a different order? Would the novel still make sense? What if you started with part two and mm. it was almost like sometimes in movies where they start you off in the middle of the story and mm -hmm. then they're like, and six months before, and it's almost like you get a prequel. If you started with book two, I think about it, you would be okay. You would be a little bit confused of who all the characters are and stuff. But then if you put part one as part two and it ratcheted up and it fit that norm of structure that you're talking about, I think people will quote, enjoy it more, but I think you would miss the point of the novel. So that's where it comes back to of, you know, your personal enjoyment of the novel and maybe a point that can be taken, whether it was his intent or not, Dostoevsky's right. intent or not. I don't know. But yeah, yeah I, I think that you, you could take it either way. That'd be interesting. Well, let's put it this way. Let's talk about what happens in part three. We'll do a quick summary and then kind of have our discussion and analysis on it. And then we'll move into part four after that and wrap up this series. All right. Make sure you keep it short so I don't fall asleep. Because <laughs> Hippolyte fell, fell asleep during Radomsky's speech. Okay. I see what you did there. All right. Plot, <laughs> plot number three. They head to Pavlovsk Vauxhall, a public hall where music is played, where, surprising, Nastasia enters once again to cause havoc. She approaches Radomsky once again about his rich uncle embezzling funds and committing suicide. And Stasia even exchanges words with a local man and is about to be struck when once again Mishkin steps in and takes the hit upon behalf of the woman. All similar things that we've seen before. Does it maybe feel taxing? I don't know. Maybe maybe having epileptic seizures is supposed to feel taxing and maybe he did intend for us to feel this way. I don't know. That repetitive nature. Yeah. Yeah. But but there's this threat of a duel that never happens. And when Mishkin finally returns to his house, there's a surprise birthday celebration for him. 
Lebedev gets drunk and discusses fun party topics like famines and cannibals. <laughs> I love how you put fun in the notes. I was like, oh, okay, we have different definitions of fun there, uh, uh, and Dostoevsky. <laughs> All right, so Ippolit wakes up during a big speech. Don't you dare fall asleep on me, sir. And enters into his long essay speech on his final conviction, a.k.a. his suicide letter. Upon finishing it in painstaking detail, <laughs> no one seems to really care, have any empathy for Ippolit. Just, I did. Uh, well, I, I mean, did. in the party, the characters in the scene were just kind of like, oh, okay. Yeah, well, they're terrible people. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so he attempts to pull a gun out, but it wasn't loaded properly again. Climactic climax of the scene. This is the epileptic emotional seizure, the way that Dostoevsky wrote each of these parts. And Lebedev reveals someone stole a 500-ruble note from him. Party's over, people. Mishkin goes to the park where he meets Aglaya, and they discuss a letter from Nastasia that says she wants the two of them to get together. Rogozhin comes along and carts Nastasia away. End part three. Dun, dun, dun. So we get a little bit of, you know, excitement there at the end, but it took a while to ramp up to that, right? Well, it's kind of hard to say there's, I assume you're talking about the Rogozhin part for the excitement. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, okay, okay, what's going to happen? Because I know something's going to go bad at this point in time. It has to. But what, what are we going to get? Who's going to die? Who's going to survive? Where, where's my not happy ending after? Well, let's say this. This part opens with this weird, like, brief monologue that I think is kind of to me thematically important where he talks about practical change, right? What's it going to take to change Russia? We all agree. We don't love the way things are going right now. There's problems, right? And he highlights that through characters in the books representing ideas and issues with egoism and nihilism and such, and even problems with how does Christianity fit into this world? But how do we go about changing that, right? Like, do we just gut everything and start over? Do we really just change what Russia is in this whole Slavophile versus Westernization conversation that seems to kind of just be a rotating topic in Russia at the time? I thought about this of like, okay, Mishkin, he lacks the intellectual sensibility to make a difference, um, and he can't recognize the deception that's happening through the entire novel, and, and specifically here in part three, and... I don't know, is he trying to say, Dostoevsky saying, hey, this is how we're going to achieve paradise. This is how we're going to fix everything is through just the naive beliefs of going along what we've always done. Or is there going to have to be action taken to make a change? Well, that's a good point, because when it comes to naive beliefs, it goes always right. Like Dostoevsky isn't blind. Like he's obviously pro Russian orthodoxy. Right. And we'll get to that in part four. <laughs> <laughs> throws oh, throws yeah. some daggers across the board there, but Ooh, um, he is not subtle he, about it either. But he's not he's not naive to the problems of issues exist all over. For how do we make this better? Because anytime he makes someone just a blind devout uh, follower, a devotee, or even representation of a movement in the novel, that character just doesn't work. Like anyone who's just a straight nihilist just doesn't make sense. Uh, isn't able to produce anything in this book. But even Mishkin, who's kind of the perfect, I don't want to say he's perfect, but he's kind of the second coming of Christianity. He's trying to be this uh, good, kindness, caring person, doesn't have the intended effect when he's like 100% in one bucket. And it's just like, does is there admission here that maybe societies are complex in the same way that 
individuals are complex. It's not just the Theseus ship of replace this individual with someone else and society works, right? We've got to fix small things. And how many things do you start fixing before Theseus' ship, when you take out one wood plank and replace with another, how many wood planks do you take out and replace before it's no longer his ship? In the same way, how many times do you change who you are and what Russia is before it's no longer that person and no longer Russia? And there's kind of the, the three big things that they're looking at topics of course, there's the intellectual viewpoint, then there is the spiritual viewpoint, and mixed in that is that third of do your morals come from your intellect or do your morals come from your spirituality? And Mishkin, I think, is battling with that throughout the entire novel. You know, and, and he he throws a lot at the reader here, right? There's, there's small sections here about uh, the women question. Right. He does have the women like, well, why aren't you just focusing on marriage? Like, why are you reading books? Like, it's kind of like the bell from Beauty and the Beast problem. And, you know, obviously we talked about Radomsky kind of representing the liberalization. What where does goodness come from to your point? Is it something that you create? Is it something around you? Well, I mean, thinking of love is uh, love is unexplainable, right? I mean, it's an emotion that we have that we use that four letter word for, uh, but it's impossible to define and Michigan is struggling for maybe two different types of love between the two ladies that he fancies here. And he doesn't know how to make that choice because he lacks, I think, a lot of, you know, the societal norms that we put on what is love or what are you going to accomplish with love? Because there is a lot of being selfish with love as well. Yeah. And it's worth pointing out, we, we aren't experts in, you know, all the philosophical movements happening in 19th century Russia. But we do know <laughs> that a lot of what Russia was discussing was, you know, morality and, and where does value come from? How do you create value in one's life? Where does that come from to the question that you just asked? And it's not until, you know, a couple decades later that Nietzsche finally releases the, uh, thus spoke Zarathustra, which really cemented, I think, some of like the grassroots movements that you've talked about before of nihilism in the area and Germany moving into Russia and such. But uh, one of the things that that is a topic is that will to power, which is where does morality come from? And for Mishkin, it's it's the Christ journey, right? Like he thinks doing good on a personal level is what creates good. Like it's just he's not even like morally driven. It's just what he's instinctually doing like he thinks it's good to show compassion and come and come um, kindness on an individual level so he's trying to put out in the world and perpetuate what he thinks he will get back i don't even know if he has expectations of return right because if you truly love i think it comes without expectation of return and I don't think Mishkin has any expectation, hence why he gives, even when he knows what people want, because he thinks this is truly a good thing. He thinks his value comes from this individual compassion and kindness. And then you yeah, have... But his feelings, yeah, but his feelings for N N Natas N Nastasia, it, he's trying to save her, right? Because she's so destructive. I mean, she's that character that comes in and just plays that same character over and over uh, you know, every time you see him like, oh, that's the bad guy, because I know that that person plays the bad guy. She's the damsel in distress. And isn't he trying to save her? And is he is he doing that for her? Or is he doing that for himself? Well, can you take on other people's suffering, you know, and, and we've seen Dostoevsky explore that, I think, more thoroughly in, in Brothers Karamazov. But yeah, that that's absolutely an ideal. And, and when you look at Nastasia, is she the opposite? Is she the 
active nihilism where she's trying to create value, but it's through destroying things. And if you destroy it, does it have value? Right? Like that's part of maybe one of the drives that we have with a self-destructive nature. If you can destroy it, is it truly valuable or good for you? And she she realizes that Mishkin is, I think, I take it as she realizes Mishkin is good. And if Mishkin is good, most people from an egoist standpoint of what's best for me would want to surround themselves with that, right? Like if I'm with Mishkin, I'll be a good person too, or he'll help me, right? But if you just look at it from a nihilist of what creates value, if Mishkin is good and you add Nastasia, okay, is that still good? I don't know, maybe. But if you take Nastasia away, is Mishkin still good? Yes, Mishkin is good no matter what with Nastasia being there or not. So therefore, adding Mishkin to Nastasia's life doesn't actually help Nastasia. It doesn't come from this external source from the internal external question that you said earlier. Wow, that's uh, that's that's pretty deep. You know, when I think about the story now, looking at it from her point of view and it being her story and not his. Wow. Yeah. Okay, I I I I'm I think I'm in, I may be enjoying it retroactively a little bit more thinking about it of of her being like hey i i can only be good maybe if i'm with if i'm with michigan hmm well and then when you look at okay so let's so let's take a look at that she's trying to create value okay so that is the master mentality from nietzsche who says that you have to you know decide what's good or bad for you now you take a look at rogosian and he's interesting because, you know, again, his name means horns. Like I pi- I literally pictured Snidely Whiplash in my dreams last night. I had a dream about Rogosian. Don't ask me why. But but he I, I want to ask ga- why. I'll ask why off camera. I want to ask but, why. <laughs> but he's the character that shows up and is like, oh, this will be great. But you could tell he's he's the devil, right? He is the snake that is presenting, oh, knowledge is good. Eat this apple and everything will be great. But he's secretly trying to destroy things behind the scenes, right? And that destruction we see isn't creating good. It isn't creating value. And I think this is maybe a way we can look at Dostoevsky's attack on nihilism of just replacing things with good or adding things doesn't actually change the value of what you're adding. So nihilism is not helping Russia in his view. I struggled with Rogozhin because he knew he was going to do bad and he he's so manipulative and he's just like, hey, you better. And this is the big foreshadowing moment that I knew something bad was going to happen in part four when he's like, well, you better marry me because, you know, I'm basically going to kill you if you don't or eventually mm-hmm. I will. And it's just like, oh, oh, OK, we're, we're not sugarcoating this. We're that. OK, she's dead. <laughs> we are not getting our ha- happily ever after. And in part two, he had like knives out on the counter and he tried to kill Michigan. Kind of not a guy that I invite to my parties, but they're both very destructive, but still trying to create value. And I think that's what's interesting, too. So here in part three, it's kind of Ippolit's chapter. Like, I don't know, Michigan and and Nastasia and and Rogozhin, they're they're magnetic personalities that we want to pay attention to. And then there's like these like less interesting characters like Ippolit who is literally dying. He's dying at this party, giving people his farewell like letter. And people are like, eh, like, I don't care about you. Like literally just ignore a person's suffering and is being ignored by society. I couldn't help but feel for him on some levels. I even feel for Nastasia, right? She was abused as a little girl and is looking for some form of control of creating something. And maybe that's why she's so self-destructor and controlling is because sometimes, um, people who have had abuse in their childhood 
need to create structure and control because that's the only thing that they can control. And maybe that's a little bit of how we should look at Ippolit's suicide letter, right? Because he can't control when he's born, but he can control when he dies. Suicide is a form of taking back knowledge in the form of control, of agency. And it's the only way he knows how to control his life, which otherwise isn't in his control. I think I've kind of expressed this before, but I think that Ippolit is probably my favorite character. He's the one that is giving you a good life advice and message of if you're healthy and happy and, and you have love and good things, you need to take every opportunity to live life to its fullest. You, you, you need to, you know, live for me, you know, because I can't live for myself because I'm going to die. And it just breaks my heart that these people didn't care more about him because no, maybe the medical technology wasn't there, but there's a lot of power in, I think the positive thinking and, and, you know, if you're surrounded by loved ones and you, have good in your life, maybe you'll have a better outlook and and be better. And I think that's where like Ippolit and, and Mishkin, you know, kind of bouncing back and forth is these two characters. They're not mirrors of each other, but they are definitely intertwined together. And it just, oh man, that, that belief of, um, you know, you, you should live your best life. And he's trying, I think. I don't know. I, I feel so sorry. He, he ended up being my favorite character. Well, I think and it wraps together what is... What I believe is an attack on nihilism is that it's too impersonal. It's too disconnected from the rest of society, to your point, where when you feel disconnected from society, I think it's a pretty universal thing that you feel lonely, right? Like, I don't think that's a unique statement. And I think Dostoevsky's trying to make that, that view where we can see one way people do feel connected is when kindness and compassion is at an individual level. Like, when, when you make it personal between you and another person— I think that's when you see characters connecting and growing. And I think that's what maybe Ippolit or even uh, Berdovsky both saw with Mishkin and how they kind of became followers in a sense of him when he showed them individual personalized compassion. And I think that's Dostoevsky's ultimate message about Christianity is you create value through those personal individual moments of, of kindness. Yeah, I guess it just made me mad because both Mishkin and Ippolit are are ostracized in certain ways throughout the story and because Mishkin is overtly good that that theme of that goodness just comes out again and poor Ippolit just gets the short end of the stick you know I mean they're, they're both outcasts but I guess that that is the point of that if you do this you can overcome the you know the outcastness <laughs> that of society will put upon you if you're just that dang good is Ippolit a weak or strong character well, I think he's the strongest, right? He's the one that has the most adversity throughout the novel, in my opinion. So you'd say he's strong because he's dynamic. Like he learned something and grew as opposed to a lot of the characters that weren't able to grow or maybe even just make small minute changes were destroyed. Yeah. And I don't think it, it's the level of change that happens, but the significance of the change. And I think this novel... While we focused a lot on this, there's there's so many things to talk about, right? We've got impropriety in society, which, you know, if you want like a whole book dedicated that, you got to check out this little book called Anna Karenina, <laughs> which focuses mostly <laughs> on that, right? With how, Epanch, with how the Eponchins didn't want to be uh, like associated with the impropriety of Michigan living with Nastasia before marriage and all that stuff. Um, you've got a lot of cultural patriotism in this. We read that amazing book, Sanchiro, 
which you see a lot of Russian nationalism in here and what makes Russia, Russia in Sanshiro by Natsume Soseke, you had the, what makes Japan, Japan during the great, you know, Meiji restoration era. You've got a lot of books that deal with even society made me do it right. Are these characters bad because of external circumstances to your internal, external question? And that was a big motivating thing in crime and punishment. So, or, you know, any Charles Dickens novel, <laughs> let's, let's move into, to the summary of plot four, and then let's kind of talk about our final thoughts on this book as a whole. So rumors surface on Aglaya and Mishkin being engaged. They have a party to introduce Mishkin. Just be cool, kid. Like, don't do anything like destroy my family's priceless Chinese vase. And then he promptly goes on a <laughs> rant about Roman Catholicism and destroys the priceless Chinese vase. Later, Aglaya Were you excited Mishkin. about that? Were you... I, I got a little happy. I don't know about that, but I, don't, I thought it was fun. I thought it was funny. Me. Yeah, I thought it was funny. I thought I thought part four was pretty, pretty entertaining. Yeah, it ramps back up here a little bit. Now, later, Aglaya brings Mishkin to the park to call out Nastasia on being a drama queen. Fair. Smooth move Mishkin defends Nastasia in her suffering and leaves with Nastasia. And Mishkin and Nastasia now become engaged. General Evolgen passes away the the wedding day with Nastasia and Mishkin's brought on runaway bride with Rogozhin and Nastasia where Nastasia just disappears once again <laughs> and uh, Mishkin scours Petersburg for her ultimately finding that she's been murdered by Rogozhin two, two months later Rogozhin confesses to the murder Ippolit dies Kolya has Radomsky get Mishkin back into Switzerland uh, mental institute and Aglaya marries a con man and plot. <laughs> you knew it was coming. You you knew it was going to be an Eeyore ending. You knew it. And he nails it. Like the best worst ending ever. <laughs> Is this a tragedy? How could you say it's not? Nobody gets a happy ending. Nobody. And very few people have any growth whatsoever that are better off. Well, what's interesting is, did any of the characters grow to what we were just talking about with Ippolit? And, like, a lot of them didn't. And they went either insane, were conned, were murdered, like, bad things kind of happened to a lot of the characters in this book. But, like, the lack of growth was there, which means the, the central conflict, which, I don't know, did you take the central conflict of what does it mean to be a good person in society? What does it mean to create good and what is good? Was that even resolved at the end of this book? I, I think so, but not in the way that people are going to want to hear. I think that Mishkin is let out into the world to see if he can have an effect on people and make a difference. And I think that Dostoevsky is saying, in my opinion, is that the world is not ready for good yet. We, we haven't evolved as a people yet to be able mm. to accept that goodness. Mm. And uh, the prince fails and has to go back, locked away, and maybe we'll try again in 100 years or something. Yeah. And it makes you, we just recently read that story where the question was, who's the crazy one here? Is it really Mishkin who got locked away because he was trying to do what he thought was ultimately good? Or is it society for allowing that sort of thing to happen and not allowing good into our lives? Who's the crazy one here? I think, I, I don't know. I, th I think it's hard to define crazy, right? I mean, it's perspective-wise of time period and that ideal of 
Russia and what it wants to be and its identity that's forming? Does it want to come from a place of morality? Does it want to play, come from a place of religion? Uh, does it want to come from a place of politics? Uh, because they've had so many problems, you know, over the, you know, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries with their czars. I think that Dostoevsky is saying that we still haven't figured it out yet, and we're not even close, but we should keep trying. And that's the point. And that's why I identified so heavily with Ippolit is we just we keep trying, no matter how dire the circumstances, you got to keep trying and pushing forward. And that's where I kind of took from the the novel as a whole. Do you think the I mean, there's a couple of big changes in the novel, though, right? Like there's a huge knife thrown across the table at Roman Catholicism in this book, right? To the point where, like, I imagine there's some people who are Roman Catholic reading this, like, oh my gosh, like, I never thought about comparing Roman Catholicism to being worse than atheism when it comes to Christianity. That is kind of a big statement because it reminds me a little bit of his future novel that he hasn't written yet, but with the Grand Inquisitor, we won't go into spoilers of that, but it comes down to the palpable claims, right? Where a lot of Russian Orthodox individuals at the time thought the palpable claims were actually claims of power, not claims of religion or claims of scripture, but just grabs at power to maintain power and replacing spirituality with, with, with political reform, with, with strength and organizational earthly desires as opposed to spiritual immaterial desires. I can see that. And I can see that this is kind of, you know, Mishkin being the representation of the church. You know, he fails to save everybody from destruction. And, you know, he kind of just goes on this circular journey over, you know, he's in and out of St. Petersburg, back and forth. He's in and out of, you know, the clinic in uh, Sweden, Switzerland. And yeah, I, I can see that. I mean, it, it's easy to pick out those, you know, uh, attacks on the church of how is that going to help define the Russian people? Catholicism, Orthodox, atheism, you know, where, where are we going to be as a people? Yeah. And I think it's even interesting to compare that with our discussion from part two, where we talked about the old believers, where they said, oh, okay, well, we're going to change uh, these texts to match the Greek Orthodox one, because obviously they're different. And they're like, what? No, we're not going to follow that. It's interesting to say, where do you take your faith and your spirituality? And how does that intersect with your organization in your church, right? Like, like faith isn't the same thing as your spirituality per se, or your, your church isn't the same thing as your spirituality. It's interesting that you bring up the term, the old believers, because I think maybe some of the only truly change and people that are affected are the young people. If you looked at um, Vera and Kokuila, Kolia are some of the younger characters in the story are the only ones that kind of are affected by the goodness of Mishkin throughout the whole novel. So eh, very interesting that old versus young mentality and belief of religion and how it's evolving along with the people in Russia. Yeah. And he even throws, you know, Aglaya under the bus by having her marry a, <laughs> a Roman Catholic individual who's a con man and cheats her out, like looking for something else besides true spirituality, I guess, in a sense, which I don't know, a little backhanded there. But, <laughs> but, <laughs> little, uh, little, very backhanded there. <laughs> so let's uh, talk about. You might as well called um, out the Pope by name. <laughs> let's, let's go back to the initial problem statement we've ha had with this whole book and with Mishkin as a whole, where we said, could he work in society? Let me change the question. What okay. would it take for a Mishkin, a second coming to work? 
I, I don't, I don't, and nowadays I don't think it can, uh, everything is too polarizing. You're, you're never going to get people to agree on what the definition of good is, what the definition of right is. You're never going to get people to agree on anything anymore. And that's very disheartening. Uh, I, I think he works even less nowadays than even back then which is so disheartening. Well, I and I think, I don't know, looking, looking at this, I don't know if back then they agreed much either. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's just us as a people. We're just never going to agree. And not, that, not necessarily a bad thing. I, I love having disagreements and having civilized conversations. And I think that's, you know, the point of literature is to open up our, our thought process to new ideas and new people and new culture and new everything. So it's not necessarily a bad thing that he doesn't work because he is such a polarizing figure why why does it have to work not working can bring just as much thought yeah well and maybe it goes back to that point too is what does it mean for something to work does does everyone in a society have to agree does everyone have to do this and maybe it comes back to that ultimate message of kindness and compassion having to be personal and maybe we just just have to learn how we make it work for us how do we make good and maybe that's just the first step that we take i don't know it's, it's an interesting question and an interesting novel. Despite my, my emotions from parts two and three, I don't want to say it was, I mean, I liked, I love this book. I think it's a great book, but there was something different about the middle. I don't want to say it was slow, but I had these emotions of that epileptic depletion of energy. And is that acceptable as a, as a, as an entertainment side of, of reading for me? Obviously the discussion well outweighs just looking at a book for entertainment, right? Like, like that, that's not the type of channel that we are. We, we want to take the, how do we compare this to our lives and how do we, how do we relook and make ourselves better? And I think that's what this book did accomplish. Maybe it wasn't the most on the entertainment side for everyone. I mean, maybe it was your favorite book. I'm not saying you had to look at it that way, but if you could take books and feel inspired and maybe just, Take that one individual moment of kindness on a personal level that you can show in your life. I think the book did its job. I would agree with that. I really like the book as well. I think that I mean, for me, it was maybe one of the weakest entries because I kept comparing it to the other Dostoevsky novels and I shouldn't have done that. I think this would be a great one to start with and then move up to some of maybe his stronger work later in his life. I kept coming back to the thinking, the idea of you know all the religion and I kept thinking of... Is Dostoevsky trying to make us push towards equality here? Does he want all of us to be good and the same? And I come back to one of my favorite short stories of all time of, I don't want to be Harrison Bergeron. Mm. Uh, I, I like having, you know, differences and I, I like I like arguing and I like debating and I like having discussions. And I think that this book allows us to have that. And I love that the journey is... Uh, staggered in a, in a way or it is not the traditional and that's going to be this the uniqueness of this that is going to make it stand out from the other great literary works of of anyone so it's definitely you know one of the best novels ever but it's definitely for me was not a crime and punishment or brothers k or yeah yeah but if you are looking to hear our thoughts on those we will leave the playlist down below uh, we're going book by book through all of Dostoevsky's works, and we'd love to have you join us on future works of his, as well as, you know, if you if you haven't read his other works and want to hear our thoughts on those, we had some really in-depth and I think really great conversations about Brothers K that, you know, it's my favorite book of all time, so obviously I'm going to have a really good time discussing what its meaning could be to us. So if that sounds like you, playlist down below, subscribe, 
we look forward to having more fun and discussions on Dostoevsky in the future, please join us. My name has been Una. Una out. Peace.